Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Juan Garza of Six Heron and many other roles in local government. Juan, welcome to the show. Thank you, writer. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. Well, it's an honor, honor to have you on board to have a conversation. I've uh, got to know you over many years in local government. You've had a lot of different hats that you've worn. Uh, and I think as a result, you bring a really unique and helpful perspective to, look, to the local government world that you and I both spent a lot of time in and that our audience is interested in. Um, I think just first, for, for, the, for the people who are living under a rock and don't know who you are, um, could you do a slow arc of your life since high school and, uh, and college and like where, where you've ended up in life? And I know you had some military service too, so just take us back a bit. I mean, you're a relatively young guy, so it can't go forever, but how long? What have you been doing? You're very kind. Thank you on the young thing. Um, so I, as you said, I am from the LA area, uh, born and raised here, uh, went to high school in Hinton Park. And I didn't know uh, what I wanted to be in life. And so when I go to college, couldn't afford college. So I went in the army. I served, served abroad, uh, served in the Middle East. And once I got back into civilian life after, you know, three and a half years of serving, uh, finally went to school and I found that I really liked public service. And so I, uh, most of my jobs have been related uh, in some fashion to the public sector. But uh, I'm truly one of those examples of how you can, as a young person, you can have your eyes set on some sort of career and then life takes you in a different direction. And, and uh, being a, a public servant, frankly, um, was something I, I never envisioned I, I doing. I, I love public service, but more in the background, uh, being in front of the public and in front of the camera was something that I uh, wasn't my thing. But in hindsight, it just goes to show how life takes you in different directions. And, and here I am and I'm, I'm thankful and, and proud to be able to, to serve the public and be in a public role and uh, just proud of every accomplishment that, that we've been able to attain during my, my service here in, in Bellflower. Well, first of all, I wanna thank you for your military service to our country. Um, very, it was, and uh, number two, I wanna congratulate you on your amazing family. I've had a pleasure opportunity to meet your wife and seen photos of your amazing kids and uh, you've done very well for yourself. So I'm, I'm proud of you on that front too. But let's talk about your public service. So you are, uh, shortly going to be wrapping up a, a term on the Bellflower City Council. So can you talk a little bit about your time on Bellflower City Council? Yeah, so uh, it it seemed longer than that, but I've been here for four years. Um, I did serve as a commissioner before that for a good um, uh, four years before that. But, uh, and I think that's why it seems like a little longer, but uh, four years as an elected. And during this time, we've, we've uh, working in collaboration with my colleagues here on the city council and with staff. Uh, really, I think my time on the council is a reflection of of how just one person uh, by themselves or herself can really cannot affect change. But I think when we all pull in the same direction and we're all civil and we're all um, work as a team, you know, of the accomplishments that we can uh, we can attain. You know, I uh, when I was elected, along with my colleague, I still remember one of the um, one of the comments that we received from an endorsement from the Long Beach Press-Telegram here locally, the newspaper, and it said that the election of my colleague Dan Coops and myself on the council uh, was a reflection of the voters wanting uh, experience balanced with new ideas. And I think that's what we've had during my time on the city council here in Bellflower. So the accomplishments we've had and pretty dramatic change that we've been able to affect during 
uh, my four years on the council um, is a reflection, I think, of that as of that experience balanced with new ideas and just a general trust. So I'm really proud of it. I, you should be proud of that. I've had over the years occasion to meet many of the elected officials as well as the city staff in Bellflower. They are a client of Trip Smith. We do some video production work in the city. Um, but council is always super approachable, down to earth, fun people. Um, and uh, has a reputation for being a council that gets along and tries to forge ahead and do uh, great things. And I think Bellflower's had a lot of successes over the years. Uh, in particular, when I talk to folks, they're always impressed with the kind of downtown revi revitalization that has taken place in Bellflower. Um, you know, you have a new uh, event center and fire uh, museum. There's a brand new parking garage that's gone up in downtown. But uh, rather than me, like, why don't you tell me about that? Tell me what that revitalization is, has been like, what the pathway has been, what's made it successful, um, what it's meant to the community. You know, I think what's made it successful has been really uh, just foundational. It's just the trust between the leadership, right? And then once that trust is established, uh, then staff itself following that leadership that we as leaders engender. And then on top of that, uh, just communication with our public, just not necessarily surprising them with what we're doing, but setting that vision of, look, this is where we're going. These are the steps that we'll take to get there. But in the end, this is the the uh, collective benefit that we will all attain as as fellow Belflorians here. And I think that piece, which you and Trip Pepe has, have been a part of to your um, to your earlier point of being um, uh, one of our consultants here in Bellflower and the communications piece that you and your team bring to us and being able to uh, communicate with our public, you providing that bridge um, has been really key. And so, um, again, a lot of accomplishments that we've accomplished here in the last four years, uh, you know, the ones that you mentioned uh, on homeless shelter, uh, the uh, not only that, but the, the, the seeds that we've planted here that are going to continue to give that fruit for the foreseeable future, even now, after I'm off the city council. Um, we, you know, we're, we're excited about the, um, the renovation that will be occurring here in our city downtown. Uh, we're gonna start essentially going up, right? Instead of being a one or two floor downtown, we're gonna start actually going up in our building size. Uh, we have an upcoming um, Metro light rail project that's gonna be traversing our city, which that in itself, uh, which I have been a, a really key part of, is gonna transform our city even more so in the future. So I think the, um, the foundation is set for our city not only to continue the progress that we've made now, but well into the future to continue benefiting our public. So, uh, you know, again, it's just it doesn't happen without that trust. It really starts with that in communication. So um, and I'm really thankful to my colleagues and, my, and our residents for entrusting me and, and in hearing me out during my time on the council. Do you think that's one reason why capital is willing to make investments in Bellflower is the consistency of the city council and kind of a trusted process to work through and work collaboratively with city staff? Absolutely. I, I, I think uh, COVID is a reflection of that. Uh, business, the business community in general um, hates uncertainty. And I think we as human beings, we hate uncertainty. And I think once you have a city and a city council that is unstable or uncertain, you know, I think the development community, the investment community will understandably shy away from entities and establishments of that sort. And I think the uh, that continuity certainty that we as a council and, and by extension, our staff has provided to our residents, but to that development community, that business community 
is a reflection of what we have here today. We have that growing confidence in our in our city by these establishments, um, and I think our recent uh, um, uh, accolades from uh, the um, the the business community at the county level of of actually selecting us as one of the top business friendly cities is a reflection of that. It's something that we're really proud of. Uh, not only that, though, but also the communication that we have with that business community. Um, so we we don't take any business um, organization or interests for granted. We we welcome to have conversations with people to see what it is that they have in in mind in our city, and we share with them our vision and where we're going, where we want to go. And I think we find that more times than not, you know, the uh, that communication tend to pay off where uh, maybe we learn something from the business community that we weren't aware of. And on the flip side, they learn something from us that they weren't aware of in our city. And it makes that decision making easier on both ends and both sides so that as we collectively move forward in the future, uh, we both know where we stand and we have that ability to communicate very quickly with each other and be nimble enough to adjust and pivot if we need to. But uh, always having that communication and that trust and we find that uh, I think within the last four years, we found that the, the development community, investment community has been super happy with what they've gotten in Bellflower because of, of the establishment of all these variables coming into one. And again, most importantly, providing that certainty to the business community and have them continue to come back. And we've had that with a lot of the developers and investors here where they continue to come back to our city after they find finalize their projects because they find that uh, that friendliness and that certainty in our city. So we're really proud of that. Yeah, and I always remind my team that your best next customer is the current customer. You just got to treat them really well and they'll be back right back at it. And it's always, for me, exciting when somebody you work with wants to come do more work with you. That's that's a great endorsement of what you've done so far. So that's good to hear. Um, mm-hmm. Your policy areas cover a lot of different um, a lot of different challenges, right? So you already mentioned some successes that have taken place in Bellflower with uh, economic revitalization, the downtown taking on homelessness, which I want to dive into in a minute. Um, but uh, in particular, you became kind of a statewide voice on housing policy issues, uh, your work in Sacramento. You were concurrent with your service to your Belfar City Council, were selected by your peers to be president of the LA Division of the League of California Cities and served a year in that role as well. And it was right in the middle of a big housing, housing debate and policy issues. Um, so I uh, and then I guess I should also say that you are now as you're leaving council, you also have started your own consulting firm called Six Heron. And uh, and that deals with some policy issues, too, and maybe some land use issues at times as well. So you're coming at this from the perspective of council member, from a statewide policy perspective and Sacramento policy perspective. And obviously working, um, I'm assuming, with developers, although I don't know exactly who you work for. We'll get into that. Um, so with all those kind of stars out there, let's talk housing policy. What uh, What's going on? with housing policy in California? What are the, from your perspective, what are the big challenges and what does the state miss uh, or get right when it comes to housing policy edicts that they try to bring down from Sacramento onto the local government uh, level? You know, I think with housing, I, I do commend, um, you know, our state leaders. You know, I, I always tell everyone they're, they're trying to do right. They're trying to solve problems. Um, and so I commend them. I've commended them in public. I continue to to this day. It's, uh, it's an issue that's not easy. Um, and as I've told many stakeholders at the state level, you know, it's a, if it was easy, we would have cracked this net already and we haven't. So um, the one thing that I do find that uh, could be improved is the communication 
between um, Sacramento and here us at the local level. I and that's one thing I've encouraged our state leaders to have is just to to have that conversation with us before they start um, proposing new ideas and new measures for consideration up in Sacramento. And what I've been encouraged about is that in the last two years, to your point, that I've been involved with housing policy a little more strongly than the prior time. Uh, what I'm finding is that this, in particular, this fall, I had more legislators from Sacramento reaching out to me, uh, despite the fact that I'm no longer the, the president of the LA division for the League of California Cities. They reached out and asked me, what do you think about this idea? What do you think about that idea? And I find that really refreshing. And if anything, I find it really hopeful for our future statewide housing policies that will undoubtedly come. Uh, I think housing is, again, an issue like it's been recently. And, and I foresee it into the future that we're going to continue to have these discussions. And I think it's good to have these discussions. Uh, but again, as long as they happen collaboratively. Uh, some of the things that I've uh, pushed for um, as I've been solicited have been really of, of being open-minded with us at the local level in terms of, of uh, working with us on, on funding from the state and also in terms of not penalizing cities that are trying to do the right thing in trying to actually expedite or produce housing here in our state. Uh, sometimes I, I, while it's easier to enact statewide housing policy, uh, I find that the uh, not taking into consideration of really the uniqueness of each city um, and it being easier to take a cookie cutter approach, I think it's a, an, an apples and oranges discussion. It just they don't fit. And I think we have an opportunity to really do an apples to apples um, relationship. It's going to take time and discussion as well. Uh, but I'm hopeful, again, based on the discussions I've had and really not having gotten any pushback in terms of the ideas that I've presented and have shared of people saying, you know what, that doesn't work and this is why I wouldn't. And if anything, what I've been told is, you know what, those are good ideas. I'm going to incorporate into this bill that I'm going to actually be submitting to alleged counsel to draft into a bill. So I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that uh, upcoming legislation with regards to housing and this upcoming session that started actually yesterday um, will have some of my fingerprints in it and I hope that if it ends up being enacted and they become law that uh, our residents will be proud of, of what we've uh, what we'll enact which will hopefully be a balance of meeting that housing need that our state obviously needs but at the same time respecting the wishes of our local residents and our local cities and I think there is a way to strike that balance. So if we could a couple of things I'd like to drive into specifics first of all uh, fair to say you expect that there'll be another attempt because there was an attempt at housing legislation last session that uh, I, to the best of my recollection, mostly fell to the wayside because of the pandemic, correct? Yes, it fell to the wayside because of the pandemic, but it also fell to the wayside because of some technical rules. And in fact, SB 1120 from Mayor, uh, uh, from a um, pro Tim Atkins itself failed. It wasn't necessarily because of a, um, a lack of clarity on the bill or a, a a values-based discussion, it really literally fell apart because of it didn't get to the other chamber on time. And mm -hmm. so I expect that because of that, there's still going to be housing policy that's going to be come down our way in this upcoming session. Okay. Uh, number two, you talked about uh, legislation and state policy that actually punished the city for trying to do the right thing. Do you have some examples of what that means when you just say that? Well, I, uh, I've seen attempts to 
have the local municipalities not enact like that's a development fees onto onto projects and i think there's a the missing point in that is uh sometimes legislators in sacramento aren't aware of the of where these fees go that you know the fact that we as local municipalities are seeing our revenues decrease increasingly because of our shift in our economy and our, the way that we generate um uh, revenue for our cities and so there's a necessity for cities to be able to, to assess these impact fees. Um, we believe me, I think we as cities would prefer not to, but I think there's a necessity. And I think sometimes a lack of understanding as to how it is that we at the local level operate and generate revenue to sustain those services to our residents is, is lost upon some people in Sacramento. And I think those are the punitive measures that I that I was referring to before. Um, also, uh, we, we tend to get um, uh, accused of, of overtly, you know, trying to prevent people from coming into our community. I, I, what I find at the local level is, is really just that there's really no opposition to that. It's more so just, you know, take into consideration, you know, the uniqueness of our, of our city. For example, I know there's some cities in, in the, uh, in the, in the Palos Verdes Peninsula here locally that are pretty unique. They, some of those cities only have literally one road in, one road out. And right. You know, and when you start creating that density in communities like that, while well intended, you know, in a disaster, you know, you don't have the infrastructure to be able to mobilize people to go in and to go out. And I think sometimes those nuances are what's lost in Sacramento. And and sometimes some things that may be interpreted by our representatives in Sacramento as being onerous or being uh, misguided and are and really are us trying to ensure that our residents our are safe and that are able to be uh, safeguarded if the time ever needed to be um, implemented or also for us to be able to provide those services case in point um, you know when you increase density in certain areas uh, that comes with an increased amount of pressure to provide let's say water service and electricity and a lot of these communities a lot of our communities my community as a case in point, we weren't designed, we don't have the infrastructure to sustain that additional density. And so I think that's, again, the, sometimes that devil in the details that our representative Sacramento are not aware of, and it, it takes for us to educate them, but also to educate them in a way where it doesn't come across as us pushing back, but more so educating them so that we can enact uh, more well thought out and, and you know legislation so that there's a win-win. So I think one example I've heard you give before, and I've certainly heard discussed, is um, increased density uh, in a residential, single-family residential area, and you say double it, or you automatically allow for duplexes to go in, right? But you could double the number of households on a street, which means you could be doubling the amount of effluent coming out into the sewer system. And is the sewer system built to take that doubling, or is the pipe size and infrastructure not sufficient to deal with that if it's not? You have to build new infrastructure. If you have to build new infrastructure, you need impact fees, right, to collect for that new investment to accommodate that expansion. But if there's policy that dictates no no impact fees or reduced impact fees, then how do you pay to get the pipes in the ground so you can properly, you know, implement a sewer system, which is basically one of the cornerstones of civilization. Without sewer systems, we'd all have, you know, various diseases and, and we'd be dead. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so, yeah, that's been one of the the examples that I've provided to some of our legislators in Sacramento, and um, they still have not come back with uh, proposed solutions, right? Uh, and I, I pointed this out to one, uh, specifically to one very prominent 
very influential legislator uh, that has been really at the apex of housing policy in our state. And uh, when I pointed that out, there was no solution presented. And um, and so I again, it's it's a tough nut to crack. And I think we at the local level are trying to present proposals, and we're hoping that our colleagues recommend as well. Um, and when, but but yes, those exist. Those examples exist. Um, and they will continue to exist. And as the more I talk to our public works professionals, they validate that point that you know that that these developments that we have currently throughout a lot of our regions, a lot of our cities, uh, we were developed with a certain capacity, uh, whether if it's sewer to your point or water or even gas, and and they weren't designed to sustain more pressure that these increased residential units would exert onto that onto that uh, infrastructure. And as we've seen. Uh, uh, and I hate pointing this out, but as as we've seen in municipalities like in San Bruno, where if you don't have the infrastructure that's designed and implemented correctly and monitored correctly, we have disasters. And while I I, I don't purport to say that that's what would happen everywhere, um, I think it's incumbent upon us as as elected officials to uh, ensure that, that that does not occur and that, that we don't exert these these infrastructure pieces more than they were designed to. Right. Uh, so I guess a related point, and it had to be a point of consideration in Bellflower, but we've tended to see a lot of policy that says if there is mass transit sited in a given area, then within a half mile or one mile surrounding, there's an instant up zone of property uh, to try to create transit-oriented development. That's a policy debate discussion. It's been a point of contention at times uh, with gentrification issues that come into play. Uh, but in your now town, soon to be former council position role, uh, you're about to have a metro stop that comes to Bellflower, right? Yes. So what does that so does that impact for uh, density uh, potentially under future legislative efforts? So I I think by and large, a lot of cities that are located next to right of ways um, that are that are going to be future transit oriented development stops and local areas. I think by and large, most of us um, are in support of having this type of development. Uh, I think the uh, the difference of opinion with some legislators in Sacramento has been that of uh, Sacramento dictating to us as local municipalities of how it would look. Um, I think the assumption with, with those proposals is that somehow we would be obstructionists, that we would not take them into consideration or adopt them. And so there's this need, this somehow this feeling that they need to tell us how it's going to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think by and large, most municipalities that I've encountered with this situation where they're going to have this increased density, increased use of, of transit oriented development uh, have embraced it. I think it's more so us at the local level of, look, we we understand our cities better. And I think we're better capable to balance what our current residents need on top of that balance with what these future residents in our city will need as well. And so I think it's more of that is, is we can do it, um, but just take us in our local opinion to consideration rather than uh, being condescending and thinking that, that we don't have the capacity or the will to do it. And then somehow you feel the need that you need to impose it upon us. And so I hear in Bellflower, as I've shared with many electives from Sacramento, we have embraced it. We actually, are in the middle of a, um, of a specific plan that will actually not only um, embrace this type of development, but actually will encourage it. And so we're really excited about, again, that future of Bellflower where we are gonna go up and keep 
center point will be transit-oriented development. We think that that's going to be the feature here in Bellflower, but not only that it's going to be here, but that it's going to be located in an appropriate area of our city. We, we don't want a city where you have transit-oriented development and you have high-rises throughout our city. That is not correct. That's not appropriate. That's not what our residents have told us, but we definitely think and see the value and it being in certain areas of our city where it's appropriate. And so we're we're excited about that. In fact, I've been talking to our city staff about uh, upcoming related efforts to uh, upzoning certain areas of our city to accommodate for this. So we are excited about not only the development that this will bring to our city, uh, the quality of resident that it will bring to our city, but also the quality of the buying power that this will bring to our city and to our city businesses. Because once we go up and we have uh, uh, appropriately located commercial establishments around these developments, uh, that's going to be a win-win for those businesses. And it's going to generate more businesses, which in turn generates into or translates into additional revenue for our cities to provide more benefits to our residents. Yeah, one of the, so like you, I had opportunity to serve on planning commission in my city of Tustin. And one of the areas that we focused on was this idea of uh, citing higher density development, residential development near our downtown Old Town area so that we would have a critical mass of localized consumers who could walk to establishments and sustain them so that that resource of the Old Town area would stay alive in Tustin and be available to everybody in the city who could, you know, who didn't live in walking distance but could drive there to enjoy it. I suspect that's the same thing in Bellflower, right? If you want good restaurants, you want your hip open air food courts, you, um, you know, all those nice accoutrements, you really you need enough mass to sustain that kind of activity to kind of get that balancing point. So it's, Absolutely. A, it's a worthy goal. And you know, one of the things we've encountered with our residents throughout our town, is has been of uh, more, more of a, I wouldn't say fear, but just a concern that all of a sudden our whole town is going to be developed in this way. And we go out of our way to say, no, 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 this is not appropriate in our single family residential. If you want to live that lifestyle that is comes with transitory development, by all means, please, you're more than welcome to live there. But if this is not what you want, if you want to go in there and visit, like you said, but then go back home to your neighborhood, that's fair. That's more than appropriate. And so I think for us as leaders to strike that balance, mm-hmm. it's incumbent upon us. And I know it's doable. It's been done. It's nothing new. And it, that's where, so for that reason, we're really excited about the future in Bellflower with our new, um, our new rail line coming in here. Excellent. Uh, and just broadly, what's, when, when is that expected to like, wrap up or that project will complete so metro right now is undergoing its final stages of its environmental review process so we expect that after it gets uh, vetted by the public the final environmental document uh long story short i think we'll break ground here in in early 2022 so we're maybe a year maybe 13 14 months away from that groundbreaking so that's exciting okay very exciting yeah. uh, let's talk about homelessness so bellflower um has been on the on of the leading edge, I think, of trying to do something about homelessness. Um, you actually worked with Judge Carter, if I recall correctly, the federal judge who's been pushing through a lot of homeless um, shelter construction and response here in Orange County, which is where I'm broadcasting from right now. Uh, and I think you were the first L.A. County city that he uh, worked with and collaborated with. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, that process, what what Bellflower ended up doing to create uh, shelter and how that's impacted your overall kind of presence of homelessness in the city of Bellflower. Yeah, so, you know, it. Um, I tell people if, if one of us would have already solved homelessness, you know, all of us would be doing it. And I think the fact that 
we're still having this discussion shows that we haven't solved it. So I, we had a local resident satisfaction survey that we conduct every two years here in Bellflower. So we had it in, in October of 2018. Our city council received that survey here. And I mentioned that survey because that was literally the start of our road towards what we've done today. And in that survey, uh, every single year since we've been holding this survey, every single year, the largest concern that our residents have expressed to us as leaders has been that that crime is our number one concern. And so for, in 2018, in that survey, it was the first time ever that we didn't have a crime be the number one issue of concern for our residents. The number one issue of concern was homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so for us as leaders, it was literally a call to action of, okay, this is what our residents are telling us. So not only did they tell us that once, but because, you know, it's never been something else except for crime. We ran that survey again, same sample size, same methodology, different group, same result. So we had the same message twice. And so <laughs> for us, it was a call to action. And and so we started assessing different models of addressing homelessness. And we found that, again, a lot of places had a good intent, but it really wasn't effective. And we found that our efforts here in Bellflower, while well-intended, were not effective either. And so uh, in assessing models from the city of New York, the city of Houston, and different areas, uh, we found that literally here in our backyard, we found what was, to our case, the most effective solution to date. Not that it's 100% effective, but it's more effective than we find elsewhere. And that was the model that Judge Carter has been pushing with the city of Santa Ana and Orange County and all the other cities in, in northern Orange County. And so not too long after that survey, I established through a, a, a mutual friend, a council member from the city of Santa Ana, I established a relationship with the judge. We had conversations and I brought this proposed model to our city council here. And our city council was understandably a little concerned about the approach. And so I thought, you know what, we'll continue to try different efforts before we try this approach. And so I, in respect to my colleagues, and so we kept trying other items, other things, and we found that it really wasn't blunting the homelessness uh, problem that we had in our city and the victims of homelessness. So I came back with that model, and like nine months after that initial discussion, and I asked, are we ready to have reconsider this again? And and we were. And so we initiated discussions with the judge. You know, the fact that we would be the first city in L.A. County to embark on this effort, this approach to addressing homelessness was not what activated us. What, what, what you know, it wasn't the momentum. It wasn't the what, what drove us. It really was just us wanting to help our own and trying to improve the quality of life in our city. That's what drove us. And um, so we implemented it or we adopted it. We implemented it and uh, we haven't looked back since. We were able to open up a shelter in May of 2020, it, it, literally from when we started construction to when we turnkey opened that facility, it took five months, which is really fast compared yes. to other examples. And, yep. and really that was a reflection of how important this was to us that we, were, we cut red tape, we expedited this project. It was important for us to get people out of harm's way in the street and get them to get help in our shelter. And so we're proud of that. And, and since then, uh, as of right now, we have uh, 39 people that are in our shelter. It has a capacity of 50 beds. So uh, we have 39 people in there, no COVID cases to date. 
Um, and uh, most of uh, we've already had a handful of people that have graduated from our shelter and are now self-sustained going into a better life. And uh, so we're really, really proud of, of what we've done. I know that other cities have either adopted our approach or are about to embark on our approach as well. And I know the judge continues to have uh, really visible discussions with the city of LA and the county of LA right now that are really active. Um, I, I would say that in our case in Bellflower, uh, this approach of, of helping those that want to be helped, but at the same time, uh, ensuring that those that don't want to be helped don't infringe upon the quality of life of our residents uh, has been a nice balance. And, uh, and today we haven't been sued and we're really proud of our track record and, and we're excited about, again, helping our own here in Bellflower. And when you say helping your own, you place a priority on somehow identifying homeless individuals who are connected with the Bellflower community, either they grew up there, or they have family there or something like that. Yes. So uh, we, in order to prevent uh, the potential of other homeless residents coming into our city and us, um, while we would like to help every single homeless person in the world, the reality is that we don't have the resources for that. So in order for to prevent that situation from happening of us all of a sudden uh, incurring or having more homeless individuals coming into our city, uh, we thought it important that we, through our resources that are local here, that we help only our local residents or somebody with a connection, a local connection here to Bellflower that was homeless. And so in our shelter, we uh, are only able to assist residents that are from Bellflower or have a Bellflower connection. And so every resident that is currently residing and getting help uh, in our shelter has a Bellflower connection. Um, everyone else that has been a homeless resident of our city, but that does not have that established requirement of having a connection to our city, unfortunately, is not able to be assisted in our shelter nor in our city. But we do uh, align them and connect them with resources that we hope will help them. Uh, so we just don't um, get people displaced. We, we do try to assist as much as possible. But again, in order to prevent an influx of new residents, uh, coming into our, our city, we we do make that limitation. And, and so far, it's been it's proven to be truly effective. Well, that's always been the argument and why people want to take a regional approach to this is if one city tries to solve for it, then you end up with a bunch of other city unintentionally, perhaps, or sometimes maybe intentionally, other cities that end up having homeless people arrive in that one city that has a facility. And all of a sudden, you're trying to solve the entire county's problems of homelessness in the little city of Bellflower, for example, right? So, and then it, it's classic, uh, no good deed goes unpunished in that kind of scenario. <laughs> so yes. um, I understand, and, you know, I understand that point of frustration. Have you been approached by the cities to contract with you to provide uh, homeless services or to offer up some beds? So we have. And uh, and so my position and our council's position has been that uh, we made a promise to our residents here at Bellflower that our shelter would not be utilized to uh, assist uh, other cities. Um, we are we are respectful in this, but we feel that every city has a capacity to do this. And so we felt that if we um, started taking uh, homeless residents from other cities, uh, that we would do exactly what you just said, which is all of a sudden we start engendering and gaining new residents. And and so for us, it was really important that as our residents had that understandable fear of becoming, let's say, a skid row or attracting that homeless, you know, encampment. Uh, and so we, we felt it important that we make a promise that the only residents that would be serviced and assisted would in our shelter would be from Bellflower only. So we've kept our word. It's proven effective. 
we have been approached by other cities and other officials and so our position to date has not changed and uh, we are respectful and we are thankful for their solicitation um, but at this point this model has helped and, and if anything it just has cemented that trust with our residents that we as elected officials have kept our word. So Juan, I, you say you're not, or the city isn't taking in contract <clears throat> services or providing contract services to other cities. Um, how are you funding the operations for this? I guess that's another kind of big question is how do you pay for these things as a city? It's a great question. And so one thing that we've been extremely disappointed with has been uh, the lack of funding available. When uh, we embarked on this effort, uh, we, the general consensus out there in the media and from other, not only regional leaders, but state leaders was, you know, we need to address homelessness. There's funding available. If you do something about the problem, we will assist you. And unfortunately, being frank, we've encountered actually the opposite mm-hmm. uh, is that that funding is limited. It usually, unless if you fit a certain uh, homeless provision model, uh, you're not uh, uh, you don't meet qualifications for it. And so that that has been really disappointing. Um, other city officials have asked us the same thing of where, where does your funding come come from? And and we've shared the story time and again, and we, we share it not in the spirit of complaining. Uh, we share it in the spirit of cautioning people that that they, there are um, risks, uh, but we'd rather as as co-cities, uh, we'd rather be upfront. Um, and so we started this model in the spirit of just doing the right thing. And uh, obviously, we're still doing the right thing, uh, but it does come with a cost. Uh, we are thankful that in our case, uh, our LA County Supervisor, Janice Hahn, actually supported us uh, with a grant of $1.5 million. But um, we were disappointed in that the $1.5 million actually didn't come from our counties. Um, homeless initiative or what we call Measure H here, it actually came from her discretionary fund. And every single time that we approach the county about uh, gaining access into these homeless funds that we as taxpayers are paying into, uh, every time we've gotten the response of, unless if you uh, conform to what we think you should operate as, you know, we won't be assisting you and supporting you. Uh, so that's been extremely disappointing. But Nonetheless, it has not deterred us from doing the right thing here locally, and sure. we understand that it comes at a price, and it's not cheap. Uh, but we feel that this is in line with our values of of stepping up um, and being an example of doing the right thing. And so, while we know that it's not cheap, uh, we continue to move forward. And and obviously, the sales tax measure that we here locally, our residents approved in the current in a recent election on November third. Uh, which, by the way, passed with a 67% approval rating, which is really unbelievable considering how many measures failed uh, throughout cities and statewide. You know, having our residents trust us in calling for this increased uh, revenue source has been really very humbling, and we don't take it for granted. But obviously, some of these funds will go towards uh, supporting the shelter. And we'll, what we're hoping is that as Bellflower increases to uh come with new uh, revenue sources, meaning as we start getting more developments, we start getting more business, and those translate into additional revenues for our city. Uh, We're hoping that they in themselves will start paying for uh, these homeless uh, services needs and that it won't come from that bottom line of these these tax measures that that, that our residents just passed. So we're hoping it'll come from a different source. And I'm pretty confident that 
as soon as we get past COVID and our finances right size themselves, that we will find that to be the case uh, and our city will be in a much enviable position of not only being uh, very much in the black, but also being able to provide these homelessness services into the future. Uh, the other thing is with regards to Measure H is uh, the danger in measures like that is that they do come with a sunset. So uh, it's not a secret that it's going to end here in the next five years, that funding source. And so a lot of cities and a lot of organizations that continue to depend on that funding source are going to find themselves not having any funding source unless of the residents uh, renew that measure. And considering, uh, in my opinion, the lack of success that measure a and measure um and measure h has been i don't know that our residents would reapprove it again and so from that perspective i think we at the local level here are going to be insulated from any of those effects and be able to provide those those services that we need for our homeless here locally yeah I, that's an excellent point i i look at some of the optics and stories that come out of measure h cost of some of the permanent support of permanent housing and that they astronomical numbers behind it or just the sheer lack of units that have been produced so far that on top of the uh, point in time counts that have come out year over year showing a double digit percentage increase in the homeless population at the same time angelinos broader la county angelinos have uh, passed a tax on themselves to address this issue it's just it's not a it's not a great recipe right it's just it doesn't look compelling i think for the average taxpayer to try to figure out how that's working out and it's that's this is the first i've heard some comments about the lack of some of that funding showing up, or frankly, the lack of money. I've always been given the impression, right? And the impression that's conveyed out there is every city wants to say no to these things, and it's always just nimbyism that runs amok, um, but that there's plenty of money to get these things done. And so it's interesting to hear that that's not necessarily the case, that there actually are fin finite funds out there available for this stuff, and that in reality, even when you had a proactive city like Bellflower who wanted to do something, finding the ongoing outside financial support to to make it happen is um, just not, you know, it doesn't just show up. It's not like a great lake of money waiting to be spent on homelessness. And you know what, we find that to be the case, not only here at our county level, but also at the state level. And that was really disappointing. And, but again, with us, we can either, either wallow in our, in our sorrow or we can move forward in our case, uh, we continue to move forward. And so we're, we're really proud of our track record and doing right by our, our Bill Florian homeless residents. Uh, Bellflower, Bellflower has its own way of getting things done in a great way. So, I mean, that speaks to the independence of that city and um, how it just hunk hunkers down to get it done. I've always been impressed by that. Um, I guess a couple other just drilling questions. If you don't know these off the top of your head, that's fine. But um, uh, cost per bed, like what was the general cost to construction to actually enable this project? Because, you know, you see some numbers like $400,000 plus for a, a single permanent supportive housing unit. What did it cost City of Bellflower to, on a per bed basis, to create this project? Oh, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't remember the figure off the top of my head as what it is per bed, but I know that uh, total cost, uh, meaning first year operating costs, and on top of that, the capital improvement cost, which is a one-time cost to actually establish a facility and make it into a, a homeless services facility, uh, so first year cost was four million, uh, with uh, half of that being operating cost, and so I think it was like four four and a half million that actually was first year cost. Uh, for year two, which we are about to start, um, what we did is we actually left it in our services agreement with our services provider because we actually don't provide the services in our shelter. We have a a contractor that does that. Mm -hmm. uh, we left it open so that uh, we would audit and assess how much um, actually was 
not needed or whether we needed more to actually operate the facility. And uh, to this day, as of right now, we've actually, uh, we don't foresee as needing an annual $2 million uh, operating cost for that facility. So I think we're going to realize some some savings from that uh, year one cost. And I think those are translate into the future. So we're we're encouraged by the fact that I think on a uh, ongoing basis, um, the cost to operate this shelter will be less than that initial um, anticipated costs. So that's good. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it still nonetheless will be, you know, um, over a million dollars, but it won't be up to two million. And so that's really encouraging. And that's a, you said it was a 50 bed unit or a 50 bed facility? 50 bed facility. Um, and uh, we've come close to a couple of times having it been maxed out, but we haven't had it maxed out uh, yet. And so that's, again, that's, that's a good thing. But nonetheless, it comes with a prepaid cost of servicing 50 people. So that that's what will go into our negotiations for year two with our service provider. Uh, and then um, I guess a related question again, sorry to get into the details, but you know, we're theoretically a lot of people listening to this are going to want some details on some of this stuff to better understand it. Uh, impact on the streets of Bellflower, right? Like there are fewer homeless on the streets of Bellflower. Is that a fair description or? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. We're so proud of that. Uh, when we constructed the shelter and we came up with the concept, uh, we had around 172 homeless residents in our city total. Um, and when we did the last point in time count in January of this year, uh, our numbers have shot up to approximately 227 individuals. Mm. And so as of three weeks ago, uh, our count is down to 60. Uh, wow. So in, in a matter of 10 months, uh, we, we've reduced it drastically and we continue to reduce it even more. Uh, a lot of the cases that we're finding now, interestingly, is our mental, severely mental health issues. And so with our residents, I, I do caution that is when you see somebody that is, it continues to be on our streets, um, there's a difference between somebody that is your traditional homeless versus somebody that's severely mentally ill, but is also homeless. And so that's a different challenge, presents a different set of circumstances, a different set of, of tool sets to address. And so we in the city of Bellflower are actively having discussions with our LA County Mental Health Department to address that last issue um, in, in speaking with professionals in this space. Uh, professionalism that I don't have, a, you know, I'm not a licensed psychologist, psychiatrist, sure. or mental health professional, but in having, in talking to people that are professionals in this space, one thing that they have advised us as a city of Bellflower is that uh, commingling or cohabitating a uh, a traditional homeless person with a person who is homeless but has severely mentally uh, health issues is not a good idea. And so um, uh, we have embraced that and adopted that. And so we continue to work with our our county uh, mental health department to find a solution to that last what we find to be the last piece of the puzzle in solving overall homelessness. And as I've actually told our mental health professionals in that department, uh, we are the first city of many cities that are upcoming to try to find a solution to this. And and, and frankly, uh, we are not there. Uh, we are not close to being there. Uh, but if anything, the discussions that we had with them here recently, actually we had them a month ago, uh, hopefully were the start of initiating that discussion because we find that uh, we are the first city in many cities that we could be coming up that will be bringing this issue up in terms of uh, why do we continue to have mental, severely mentally ill people in our cities in our streets, sleeping in our streets, 
uh, to this day uh, without a solution. And so we, we continue to push for that. And I'm confident we will get there, but um, it's going to take some time, but um, I'm confident we will get there. Yeah, mental health seems to have been a statewide issue. I believe we've had at least one ballot proposition on it in the last few years. And um, so, I, you know, it's a policy area that 20 years ago we hardly ever seemed to talk about, to the best of my recollection. But it's been a, a much more area, bigger area of activity for the last few years. It would just be nice to see some actual progress on that front as well. Um, all right, I want to I want to wrap this up, but I'd like to wrap this up by talking a little bit more about you. So um, you've uh, you've started your own firm, Six Heron. Can you just talk a little bit about Six Heron, what that's all about, and what you know um, where that name came from? Because it's a very unique name. But but then go on and tell me a little bit about the firm, what you're up to. So thank you. Yes. So Six Heron, um, six is the number of people in my family, uh, and Heron is actually my last name, Garza translated into English. So okay. I thought, you know, to remind me why it is that I established this firm, uh, I am a communications professional. That's my background. And so this firm is a communications firm, communications in all facets, whether strategic planning or government relations or media relations, uh, public relations, all of the above. And so uh, we currently have uh, a different a set of, of clients that uh, either, again, benefit from our me media relations services or our communication services, our public relations, anything. And so um, we do everything from, um, you know, and, and the light's going to go out here. So I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> I haven't been moving much here and I have a sensor here. So I apologize. But it's good to know that that Bellflower City Hall is eco friendly. <laughs> yes. This case in point. Um, so uh, we assist different clients. Uh, you know, we have uh, sports professionals that are in the limelight uh, that we assist with public relations and media relations. We have development clients, both in, in self-storage and also in housing as well that benefit from our, our services. Uh, we also have uh, actually people that in the entertainment industry as well that benefit from our services as well as we have client cities as well uh, that benefit from our services. So we. Uh, we have a, a wider range of different clients uh, in our in our service levels, but on top of that, you know the experience that that um, that Six Heron brings in terms of what we've done before. So we've we've done communications in the water industry space, in the in the trash industry space, in in the uh, international uh, trade space, in transportation space, air quality space, housing space, um, in public transportation space as well. So. Uh, we we serve a wide variety of clients. We have a wide breadth of experience, and uh, we are here to assist anybody that that needs assistance in any of that. We are really proud of our track record of success and and client satisfaction. So thank you for allowing me to share on on Six Heron. Absolutely, Juan. Well, it's uh, you know I, I love I love the root of the name and where it came from, and a reminder of you know why why you much like me work every day to feed our families and take care of. Um, take care of those that we love and care about, not to mention take care of the clients, right? And do great work. And of course you bring a nice perspective to public policy issues, having worked um, up in Sacramento on policy issues and working from the seat of the dais at a city council and uh, and in your prior work doing public affairs. So uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time today. I appreciate our audience joining us. So that's today's report. My thanks to Juan for joining us. Uh, from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time.
Thank you, Ryan. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.